Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. Uh, I'm JT Russell, and uh, with me tonight for his 3,457th act is Quick Draw. <laughs> Quick Draw, three, four, five, seven. <laughs> How are we doing tonight, Quick Draw? I'm doing good. Good to be back. We took a. I took a week off. I don't know about you. I mean, you never take a week off, Justin. Never taking weeks off. Never taking weeks off. Um, but yeah, not to be outdone and very fitting for our second episode of season two. That's two, two right there. Not tonight's listening, I'm sure. Uh, we have none other than second act. Very fitting indeed. Welcome back to the lab second act. Thanks, but I guess I now need 3,455 more acts. <laughs> You'll catch up. You'll catch up one day. It's okay. You will catch up. Oh, man. That's a lot of that's a lot of seasons. Holy moly. Holy moly. Well, it would be it would be a cool thing. Cool problem to have for the rest of the Keyforge community. <laughs> How do we get rid of these sloppy lab work guys? <laughs> exactly. Exactly my and, thoughts. Oh, I, or or weekend key warriors, I suppose. Yeah, that's a lot of acts. Um and welcome to the folks in the chat. Hello, Cloggin, Fluxamal, Dataforge Stream. Welcome, welcome. Glad to have you all here with us tonight. Uh or today or whatever, whatever it happens to be where you're at. Um yeah, we have a super fun topic. This is actually one that uh, John, that you uh, you kind of pitched or, or thought would be fun to talk about when we were in our interludes. Uh, so the topic, uh, if I'm uh, paraphrasing correctly, is how to win an archon. How to win an archon, and uh, do you want to uh, just kind of tee up how how the you know the genesis of this and and what made you think it'd be kind of fun to dig into? Yeah, absolutely. So I've talked about this a little bit before on my podcast on Weekend Key Warriors, but I wanted to go into it in a lot more detail here. Um, the idea that I hear in a lot of places that I can't compete in Archon because I don't have a deck that's competitive enough to win an Archon. And to me, my experience has shown that you don't necessarily have to have, you know, one of the established big money decks in order to be able to compete in Archon. So just as an example, um, the very first Keyforge Voltor I ever went to, um, I took a deck that I had bought for $35 on eBay. It was called Duke H. Gaunt Vision, and it ran all the way to second place in that tournament. And you might say, well, how did that happen? And a lot of the reason why that happened was because it was an unsettled meta at that time. Worlds Collide had just come out. People didn't know how to deal with a lot of the Worlds Collide stuff yet. Everyone was still sitting on their old um, Coda stuff. And so it was able to sneak in in a way that um, might not have been possible if it had been three months earlier or three months later. Of course, three months later was COVID, so it definitely would have been possible. But, um, and then uh, at Nationals this year, I was able to run an archetype. Everyone was talking about how the woe decks that you wanted to play were prospector decks or berserker decks, and most of the other tokens weren't super useful. Although I guess some people were saying warriors. But what I was able to do was run a Legionary Scholar deck, which now everyone looks at and everyone says, hey, that's a really strong combo. But at the <laughs> time, it was a relatively new thing into the meta. And again, an unsettled meta let me sneak in with something that might not necessarily have been what everyone else was looking at or what everyone else was trying to play at that point. So I think that there are ways that you can be competitive with out having to go out and spend hundreds of dollars on a deck if you can find those holes in the meta and exploit those holes in the meta. Yeah, just before we go on to, I have I have second act who lionizes helium, the deck you're talking about, uh, pull up on screen for the folks on uh, on Twitch with us while we're doing this live, looking at it saying that, oh, but this is an 86 SAS deck, must be nice to be you. Uh, I have preview SAS enabled. Let me, let me flop over to current SAS where we'll see that this is currently weighing in at 74, 74. And I believe too, that that bump is largely in part to you representing this deck so well at the event, uh, facing <laughs> off against, uh, facing off against uh, Nova and, and how you're saying, okay, maybe, maybe some of this stuff deserves a little bit more weight. <laughs> yeah. Nova did actually tell me after um, we played at nationals that a large reason why legionaries and scholars got a huge bump there was because of what that deck was able to do to jock at um yeah during the uh, original rounds there mm. and okay side side note because we care a lot about pronunciation on the show 
Do you say Jacques, <laughs> Jacques or Jacques? And I've heard well, Jack technically, too. I guess it should be Jacques, but um, I usually just say it quick and say Jacques. So, okay, all right, all right, all right. okay, noted, 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 and moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. I, I have some initial questions. So, mm-hmm. I hear you, and I, I think this is a very relatable topic, and I think that a lot of people listening, myself included, are very eager to learn more from you about this. Now, my first rebuttal is going to be sort of what Justin JT already hinted at here is that second act who ionizes helium is currently an 86 SAS deck in the future SAS. I just looked up uh, Duke, was it Gaunt, Gaunt Vision? It's an 83 SAS, which you got for $35 in a, in a nice deal on eBay. So it sounds like, you know, you're talking about a meta that was unsettled, but we're kind of in a settled meta now, or like, let's assume that like most of the time we are in a more settled meta. There might be like one big event where you're not. And so I think no one would look at Duke Gaunt Vision now, as I'm looking at this deck with triple tribute, Brachus, Ludo, two Pompitus. Um, it actually has a decent amount of C for a World Collide deck. Like no one would look at this and say like, oh, this is a very unassuming deck. I wonder if I can win a Voltor with this. You'd look at this and be like, yeah, this could, this is pretty, pretty powerful deck, um, especially for back in that time period. So like, try to help me get to the point where I, I can say like, all right, you know what? I probably have a deck in my 500 that I own that I could win with. Cause right now I don't feel like I have that. And I, I'm pretty fortunate to have a good collection, a big collection, some fairly good decks. I still can't find that confidence when I'm looking at things like Jacques or ooze or even uh second act which i'm going to refer to the deck by its first name um and and another example is one of our teammates decks jdg um chandra the probably complex that deck deck. is insane and so like i was actually playing against him in kagi last season or two seasons ago and i knew that he was going to bring that deck because he always plays that deck and i just was killing myself trying to figure out what deck can i even bring that can win against this and adaptive and I was having trouble finding something. So like, I look at the caliber of these decks that are getting to be pretty famous now, and I just, I'm just i struggling to think that I have a deck that can compete. So like, how would you convince me otherwise? Well, the first thing I would say that you would want to do is you want to play your decks, or at least your good decks, um, against each other. That's what I did when I got all of my woe decks in, is I immediately started playing them against each other and kind of seeing what stood, which one went to the top. And Helium was definitely the one that went to the top. Sorry for calling it by its last name, but that's how I refer to it. Um, So Helium was definitely the deck that went to the top when I did that. And so at that point, um, I started testing it against a lot of the well-known decks out there. Now, at the time, Ooze wasn't the thing yet, um, or maybe it had just shown up in Philadelphia or something like that, but it wasn't really a major part of the meta yet. Um, however, a lot of the other decks like Pink Jacket and Pink Fraud and Jock, those were all known decks. So I tested it against those decks. Now, the way I did that was because I take my junk decks that I'm not u- using for anything, and I take those decks and I make um, uh, proxy decks with them. And those proxy decks give me a chance to, you know, get practice playing real life games. Now, of course, you can also go on TCO and practice against those. And I guess that works just as well. Or it's even better if you can get your teammates, if you have teammates to um, play those decks against you. But however you're going to do it, you want to practice against those decks. And what I found when I was practicing Helium against those decks was that Helium had a very good matchup into Jock, and I knew that going into Nationals. When I went into that matchup, anybody else, I guess, would have been really nervous to face Jock. I was very happy to face Jock because I felt like I had a good matchup in there. Um, I knew that it had a somewhat favorable matchup into Pink Jacket. I had won that matchup a few times in practices. Um, It had about a 50-50 matchup against Pink Fraud. So when I practiced all that and I played all those um, matches out, I was able to notice that it had a good chance against those very well-known decks. So I think that's a big part of it is just practicing and playing those games. Now, as far as the unsettled meta thing that I was talking about earlier, uh, one of the things that was really advantageous for me the first time that I faced Jock was that 
Nova, I don't think, had seen a legionary um, trainer scholar deck before, at least not one like that, and didn't necessarily know exactly how to attack it at that point. So I think mm-hmm. that was something that uh, also worked out advantageously. Interesting. So you're doing very, very intentional testing against the top decks that you're expecting to see at a Vault Tour or at Nationals or what have you. You know, do you, you have your kind of gauntlet? I, I know, but I'm asking for, for, the folks, for the folks at home, right? You have a gaunt, your gauntlet of, uh, of top decks already proxied up and that you kind of run through and that's, that's kind of a regular thing. Yeah, that's how I do a lot of my testing is by running against those top decks. And I don't necessarily need the deck to beat every top deck because mm-hmm. there, if if a deck wins every against every top deck consistently, then I mean, it's probably the best deck in Keyforge. And I don't think I have the best deck in Keyforge in my collection. Well, I, and I don't think the best deck in Keyforge, the quote unquote best deck in Keyforge beats every, every deck consistently, right? I, I, I hope, I don't believe that there is such a deck. Um, but I think it's an important point too, because I, I, I believe that a lot of folks jam a bunch of games on TCO's competitive queue and say, oh, this is my highest win rate deck against the randos on, on competitive. It's got to be my best deck, my best shot for a vault tour, which I don't think is necessarily true either. I mean, in a number of cases it will be, um, but I don't think it's you know necessarily uh, necessarily for me or, or any of the or any folks like. I think that type of testing is worthwhile. And the reason I think that type of testing is worthwhile is because when you go to a vault tour, every deck you play isn't Ooze or Jock or Pink Fraud or any of those decks. Um, you're going to play a lot of other decks too. And you've got to make sure that you don't just match up well into the top decks, but that you match up well into the other random decks that you're likely to see there. Uh, And that also helps you learn what are your weak matchups? What are the types of things that are going to cause problems for your deck? Um, I was very lucky um, at Nationals because I ended up in round three, I guess it was. Four, I don't remember, but against one of my weak matchups. And I got very lucky in um, a couple of ways there, which is that number one, my deck drew out very well. And number two, my opponent made mistakes. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just need those sorts of things to break right for you. You know, you're never going to be able to get to top eight in a Voltor without some things breaking right. Um, well, I guess maybe if you're Nova on Jock, then yes, you can. But beyond that, <laughs> I mean, it's it's fair. I think there's, I mean, there's there's value in volume of experience, right? There's value in volume of experience, and that doesn't have to be necessarily against the top competition. And there's also value in kind of uh, kind of quality. Let's let's say the the, qual- the quality versus the quantity, right? Tar- very targeted. Um, and I mean, when we were talking to JDG before Canadian Nationals. It was, you know, do I take the deck that probably beats um, that probably beats Pink Fraud or has a good matchup against Pink Fraud, or I take the deck that probably beats every other deck in the room or has a better chance against every other deck in the room, and if I make it to the finals, ho hum, against Pink Pink uh, Pink Fraud, uh, I'll just hope for some luck, you know. It's an interesting question. I don't know, um, but maybe he's wishing now with his second place trophy that he went the other way. <laughs> But I mean, who knows that he gets that second place trophy at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, right. totally. Um, probably doesn't. Probably um, doesn't. This this kind of like leads me to a question that I had asked JT and some of the other Slappy Lab workers recently. It was like, at what point? Like, we talked last year, last season about um, the meta and what is a KeyForge meta. And I stated back then that I didn't really think that there was really a meta because there was such a diverse range of decks that could win. And I think that's what you're saying as well. But then on the other hand, we see very consistent performers like Jacques. And at what point do you say like, okay, the deck I'm bringing to Archon in this tournament has to be able to beat Jacques or I'm not bringing it. Like that is really a meta game at that point where you say like, eh, Jacques is the meta because I'm if I'm going to win, I'm probably going to have to face it. And so this deck loses to it, even though it might be my best deck otherwise. Like, does that get into your head at all? Well, I think back to um, what didn't happen, but what very easily could have happened um, at Nationals, because at Nationals, um, Corey, um, Vermont Gamer, uh, was in the other semifinal match, and he was able to win the other semifinal match, and then he knew that his matchup into Jock was a bad matchup. 
So he's sitting there hoping that I could knock Jock off, which I did not manage to do. The deck didn't draw off very, draw out very well, unfortunately, in that round. Um, but had I managed to do that, he wouldn't have had to face Jock at all. So sometimes, again, that comes down to, you know, much like the question about um, JDG and his um, decision he had to make. Do you decide to take your deck that's going to go well against most of everything and then just hope that you um, can get some luck regarding these top decks? And I think that's kind of what you have to do in that case. You don't want to bring a deck specifically to defeat one deck because you're going to generally, if you if you have that silver bullet, it's got to be able to get to that matchup in the first place. And it's probably not going to. So I think you hope for some luck. You hope somebody else does your job for you. This was a big thing. Uh, I mean, a bigger thing in the days of MTG Grand Prix where you'd get buys based on your ELO rating. This is back in the days before they did points and had an ELO rating, you know, and you could bring a different deck with three buys, right? Because you missed a whole lot of random junk in the first three rounds that could just throw you off. And I think there's, there's sort of stages to a large event. There is the like, I, I, pr- I need to be able to just punch really hard and wade through kind of random stuff. And then there's like, I'm going to whittle down to where things are more well-defined. And then there's the like top eight phase where you probably have a decent sense for the the strength of the deck or even, even type of the deck that you're going to be facing. And it's almost like almost different, different pulls for each of those, each of those phases, which is, which is really interesting. Yeah. Lots of, lots of rogue stuff, especially in the early phases. Nah. So I don't know. Or of course you you could do what I managed to do with the first two tournaments of this year and face Zach Armstrong in first round at your first tournament and then face George Cagle in first round at your second tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's how yep. the draw is sometimes. It happens. It's really weighing into my my thinking for quick quick draw and I. We are we're heading to KFC in a few weeks, some weeks, four uh, some number of weeks. Three, yeah, four. Thereabouts. Um, but the deck that I that I played at the last Voltor um, is a very strong deck. I I, I would want to say maybe my best deck, um, but uh, it's very reactive. And I think having something that having a proactive strategy really helps you punch through those for, early rounds, especially. Um, and I think uh, I don't know that's that's something that's kind of weighing in my mind. And I think is probably something that is something you should consider when you're thinking, you know how to win at how to win in archon right you have to i think having a, a proactive strategy having threats is very strong like is very good uh, especially for the early rounds and it's uh and especially if you're thinking about getting through you know five to eight rounds versus punching through one round like uh like or like an abr week uh, deck selection versus uh versus uh, uh hoping to make day two of a vault tour sort of a sort of a scenario I think you're exactly right. And I think that um, just in general, I'm a reactive player by nature. I like having responses to things. I like having artifact control. I like having board sweeps. I like having amber control. I like if you present a threat, I have something I can do about it. But what I've discovered is that in general, those decks have not done very well for me. The decks that have done very well for me are the decks that are presenting their own threats. The decks that are saying, you must answer this or you're in trouble. Yeah. Not tonight is vigorously nodding your head somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I think that if you look at the um, Vegas Vault Tour and you look at the Archon Top 8, there was one piece of kind of semi-hard R in the entire Top 8. That was uh, that Equidon card that lets you swap your artifact for somebody else's artifact. I don't remember what it's called. Uncommon Currency, is that the one? That's it, yeah. Yeah, so there was one uncommon currency, and that was the entire artifact control in the entire top eight. So I think there's two potential conclusions you can draw there. I think one potential conclusion you can draw there is that in general right now, the meta is not leaning towards those sorts of decks, so you should probably play something that doesn't do that, something that is just going to present its own threats and not worry about having responses to things. You could also look at it that if you can find a deck that has responses to things, it could do really, really well in the current meta if you can also if you can respond to those specific decks, if you can do things that neutralize what those decks are trying to do. Um, and 
the deck I want to bring up here, and I think you have this one ready to go, uh, Justin, which is Faith B. Troptogram. Sith of Angmar's deck that he used to win. It was Dallas. Is that right? The thing I find so interesting about this. Yeah. So I believe he won Dallas with it. Uh, and the thing I find so interesting about this deck is that, as Z has said several times about this deck, it's not a strange shell deck. It's a sandhopper deck. Uh, and the whole deck is the triple sandhopper. And I think he's largely correct about that. And so when I look at this deck, I see, okay, so it wins against a lot of decks, but one Snecklifter completely tears this deck apart because you Snecklifter the Sandhopper, you Sandhopper the Snecklifter, um, bring it back down, grab the second um, Sandhopper, bring it back down, grab the third Sandhopper, bring it back down, grab the Equisi Outpost or something else, and suddenly all the artifacts are on your side of the board and you probably win the game pretty easily. So if you face that deck and you happen to have the correct R, that's going to make for a really good matchup there. So it you could make the argument that if you could find the right deck that has hard R and can match up relatively well into some of these decks, you could steal a bunch of games that way. But so far, that isn't really the way that it's been working out. Those decks have not been making it through to the top eights. You mean like the Snacklifter decks? Yeah. And I mean, the, the flip side of that too is, you know, the, the silver bullets get spread very thin, right? Like, like it was Snick, it was Snacklifter for Faith, but, you know, it's a different card for a different monster deck. Uh, so the if, you're, if, you're, if your hopes are on Snacklifter, you know, maybe you, you play Faith once. Um, but maybe that's not enough to carry you to a top cut, whereas whereas Faith has to dodge the one or two Snecklifter decks in the field. Um, so so it's interesting. I mean, this is this is this actually is a point that's very interesting to me. You see a lot of decks that are very good when their artifact hits. You know the artifact, quote unquote, artifact decks, right? So there's there's this one with triple triple Sandhopper. You know, Heart of the Forest is the one that everybody talks about. Um, Though no one seems to be really playing, <laughs> at least outside of Alliance. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I play I play a, a very artifact heavy deck, and then it's the first thing I look for is do they have hard hard R? And it's a very different game if the answer is yes than if it's no. Um, but I I don't know. I mean, John, you've said to me many times that you really only consider decks with hard R. So, given what you said about some of these recent results, is that is that still true for you? Yes, um, I still look for decks with hard R because there are so many auto losses you can take if you don't have hard R. Um, Etten's Jar, of course, is the top um, card that comes to mind. But I look at um, some what we've seen in some of the previews for um, Grim Reminders so far and the curse cards that are coming out and some of the other cards we've seen there. And I look at some of the really powerful artifacts like Sandhopper that are in Winds of Exchange. Oh, and for me, like I look at a deck like Helium, and in Helium, once Serarium completely shuts it down. So having the destroy them all in there is absolutely essential for that deck because otherwise it just completely dies. I've I've had some decks that I would have liked to play, and then I, I avoided solely because of something like Eaton's Jar, which is, I think, definitely like a more meta card than Serarium. Like, you're more likely, I think, to run into Eaton's Jar in a Vault Tour than you are Serarium just because of the, the strength in them. You know, like, people want to play mm -hmm. Eaton's Jar decks. Um, and so I think you're kind of saying that, yeah, like, that's a valid. And so that's that's why it's important to you to have something like a Destroy Them All in there. If you did not have that, would you still feel comfortable playing Helium? If it was, like, just... Destroy them all was out, and you had no hard R in there. Um, that's a really good question. I would say that I probably would still have played the deck, but I would have been much less comfortable um, with the deck and would have been a lot more nervous about it. But that said, I don't know that I've ever actually run into a situation where I desperately needed the destroy them all in order to get out of a um, mess like that. And again, be probably because of what you're saying about Serarium not showing up all that often. Or, um, you know, I have run into an Etten's Jar before with it, but um, 
I think they jarred the destroy them all. So if the destroy them all hadn't been there, then they probably would have been able to jar something else like, of course, the trainers, and that would have caused a real a large problem for the deck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is so this is interesting. I push this one step farther. Uh, uh, good chat. A good comment from the chat that hard R is a scam and it's a luxury for the already rich, right? So the question is like, the next question below that is like, okay, let's suppose you don't have a, a very deep collection or you're not trying to break the bank seeking out a top tier deck. Now, at what point are you like, no, this deck is just, you know, the, the, your, your decks are on, on a scale, right? From from best to worst. And your best decks don't have any hard R, but you go down kind of a level or two and you, and you start seeing the hard R showing up. Like at what point are you like, mm, this deck is good enough relative to my other options that I should just play it instead of the hard art. Is there kind of like a cutoff in your mind? For me, the wanting hard art comes much more from purchasing decks than it does from playing decks from my own collection. If I open a deck and it's really good and it doesn't have hard art, I'll play it. Um, Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to purchase a deck, if I'm going to spend money on a deck, I want to have hard art in there. I feel the same way usually. Yeah. And I think that's partly psychological, but yeah, it makes sense to me. What's the, ooh, another question? Oh, man, the chat is on fire. What's the value of hard R in the double-sided artifacts discussion? Get out of here with your hard R. We're saying if your opponent plays a whirlpool and you blow it up, you are not welcome to the sloppy lab. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be disconnecting and not returning. Um, I'm going to say my, my recollection is that when Quickdraw and I played in last AVR, he played down a whirlpool, and the first thing I did was blow it up. I know everyone always does that because they they recognize it's probably the most powerful card in the game, so they have to just drop what they're doing and destroy it. This one, this one is for this one's for you, Cloggin. You can kill all the artifacts you like, but it has to be with a fight after you've animated it. Okay, no auction offs, you know, no reclaims. You got to animate it and fight it down. Then, then it's good. Then it's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in some ways animator is the best hard r in the game just can keep destroying things over and over again it's a good card animator is great that is the only piece of r in uh in t zyger not not zygler but zyger um that uh, <laughs> uh that's probably the, that's the deck that i would be playing if not for a recent open uh probably at kfc but all it has is the all it has is the animator and ultra gravitron to subsequently purge that artifact for goods for goodsies nice. Um, but yeah, um, I want to back up a little bit. Um, and so, John, you had mentioned a few times the factor of, of luck in an Archon tournament. Mm-hmm. And so for uh, another season one callback to when we talked about luck, skill and deck, what would you rate luck, skill and deck uh, on a scale of, you know, 100 points to give out? How would you divide that up? Not to put you on the spot. So my issue is that when you get to very high level play like you would see in the later stages of a vault tour skill doesn't tend to matter as much at that point because everybody is very skilled everybody's playing very well people aren't making mistakes now yes there are some players nova's one of them george kegel's another one um who might be just that extra level above because they can really see the whole big picture and see everything that's going on But for the most part, I don't think skill makes a major difference at that point. I think the biggest factor at that point becomes the deck matchup. And then things like draw luck become the second biggest factor. I think skill becomes very much a wash at the top level. Interesting. Yeah, just just to clarify, though, you're not saying that skill doesn't matter. You're saying that once you've gotten to that point, it's almost a given. It's almost a given. Okay. So to get to that point... Yeah, to get to that point, it's very helpful. Um, I have definitely had um, instances in several tournaments I've played in this year where I should have lost games and I won those games because of opponent mistakes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just really need to get that. I don't know if you would even call that a matter of luck. I mean, that really goes under skill, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But Sometimes you need to be saved from luck by skill, I guess. But usually that only happens in the early rounds because typically if you're making those sorts of mistakes, you're not playing in the later rounds. So far, your takeaways here that you're trying to you know, share with the audience is that you don't need the best deck. You don't need a top tier deck. But if you have some skill 
and to get out of the early rounds, you have a deck that you prefer a, a proactive deck that creates threats for the opponent. Um, and you like something that, um, I don't want to say well-rounded, but, you know, is at least like, you know, it doesn't have a bunch of duds in it. Because if you have a bunch of dud cards, then, you know, you're going to lose a lot of your punch. So what else, uh, what else would you, would you add to that? Yeah. And the other thing I would definitely throw in there is the idea of making sure that you test the deck and not only that, but that you get a lot of reps with the deck beforehand. Now, I know there's a couple instances this year where people have opened a deck on the Friday of a vault tour and then gone on and been successful with it in Archon. And that will happen on occasion. Sometimes you just get the right deck with the right matchups and the right luck and everything falls into place and you do very well that way. But in general, I think that you are better off having a bunch of plays um, on your deck. Uh, I think that if you look at a lot of the decks that are winning Vault Tours this year, um, for example, um, June's deck, uh, Becky, um, she had, what, a thousand plays on it or something like that. Yep. Um, Nova's got to have 500 plays on Jock or somewhere around there. So having a lot of plays on a deck and having seen it in a lot of situations can be very helpful. I generally won't play a deck at a major tournament unless I've got at least 100 reps on it. Now, obviously, that's going to um, depend upon the amount of time that you have, and no one, and not everyone's going to be able to get to that level, but you're going to want to put as many reps into the deck as you um, can beforehand, partially because it lets you know when you have to shift your strategy. Like One of the things that Nova has been fantastic at doing on Jock is she knows what type of strategy she's going to have to play for that particular game. Is she going to play a lot of the Dis and Infernus and try and purge out a lot of her opponent's um, cards and threats? Is she going to try and get down the Saurians and just try and hold the board? She has different options for the way that she can play that deck. And she knows which one of those options she's going to pursue for a particular game. So having that sort of flexibility and knowing when to use that sort of flexibility is, I think, another really important factor there. And experience gets you that. I definitely envy that deck's flexibility. Like I've I've noticed it as well. Like not every deck has that flexibility though. Like if you if you have a deck with lots of archiving decisions, lots of purging decisions, especially self-purging, that's when you get to a deck that can play two completely different games. And not every Archon deck can do that. But in that example, I, I totally agree that, you know, having those extra reps will teach you these situations to understand better which line of attack you need to be going in a matchup. Yeah, one of my um, woe decks that um, I've played a fair bit in Archon at this point is an interesting deck because it has a really good Equidon house and it has a really good Brobnar house with a subpar Star Alliance house. And that subpar Star Alliance house has a Quixel Stone in it. And that Quixel Stone is really interesting because every game you have to make the decision of, am I going to play that Quixel Stone? Or am I going to discard that Quixel Stone? And the deck obviously is a completely different deck if you play the Quixel Stone versus if you discard the Quixel Stone. But I've won a lot of games by playing that Quixel Stone. Even though it's a Halifest deck and it wants to hold a board, I've won by playing that Quixel Stone and neutralizing what my opponent's trying to do. And I've won also by not playing the Quixel Stone and playing to the deck's strengths in Brobnar and Equidon. So... Oftentimes, knowing that knowing how f to approach the flexibility of your deck is a really important skill. And the only way you'll learn that, especially in a matchup in a situation like that, where your decision is based less on your own deck and more on your opponent's deck, is by playing the deck against a lot of different matchups and seeing what happens. And also experimenting, right? Um, sometimes you just have to take a shot and try a line that you haven't played in the deck before yeah uh, jt i see you do that all the time playing some of your decks it's really fascinating to like you're going into play a competitive queue just against someone random or maybe against a teammate and um it's you have a great deck a tier one deck and then you just like kind of mess around and like try to do something different that you hadn't done before just to see if it works i think that's a great mm -hmm. practice strategy um and then 
kind of gives someone playing against it like the false hope like <laughs> oh man like i just i just beat this amazing deck and it's like well like jt was just kind of messing around over there you know trying something new but it's it's good practice though it's a it's a great line of thinking to try to see like can i do something maybe that i didn't expect that i could do with that yeah the f forced exploration you, you have to be very uh very kind of intentional with your exploration for some decks and it's easy to like to pick up a deck that you love and you've played a lot and just kind of get into a rut with how you how the lines play out and like oh i have this one line that looks that i love that i love doing it's a lot of fun to play and you just push for that push for that every time um the deck that i have pulled up now uh t zager the lighthouse doc mentioned a couple times has a really fun line where you you know you've got animator and transporter platform and then you're playing um you're playing uh ultra gravitron every turn and it's like lols look my archive is huge um and that's awesome but it takes a lot of time to set up it's it it is almost certainly winning when it's when it lines up you know it's very hard to to win when a deck is you know archiving five a turn maybe purging one of your dudes and, and capturing onto its own artifacts just kind of kind of silly um but you know if you set that aside there's and ignore kind of the gravitron shenanigans there's still a pretty good deck there with you know infernuses and and kirby's and like man maybe you could just play this as an mm value deck and uh and that's just good enough so i'll play a lot of games where i ignore the like really kind of strong good lines that i've already established and just see what how the deck behaves when i'm trying to push it in other directions and i think that's a really important kind of approach and on the other end of the spectrum like T Zager is, is an excellent deck. It was probably one of my best one of my best pulls next to one or two others. Um, uh, but I have another deck that I'm playing in, in Kagi right now, and I'm on my I'm four matches in. I've not played the deck the same way in any of the four games. And what's really interesting too is I don't think any of my opponents have played it the same in any game either. And it just kind of goes to show you like how deep a lot of these decks can be and how much there is to explore some of them. And if you if you do just take the lines that you're comfortable with or that you that you fell in love with the first time, they could be great lines, but if you don't force yourself to kind of try some of the other ones, you're you're very possibly leaving a lot of value on the table. And that does mean probably <laughs> losing horribly in some games, <laughs> you know? Uh uh, I mean, I've, I've had games where quick draws come, has come in and I've just got like 20 strange shells on the board and I'm not making any amber. He's I like, remember that game. It's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, I'm just I, seeing what I, happens. I messaged like, you like, uh, you're not this bad when you're playing against me on Tuesday evening. <laughs> What's going on over here? Uh, but then I, you, I, I understood later that, you know, that's, that's your way of doing the forced exploration, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there are a lot of decks in the, in this, you know, 70 to 75 range that can cough up a lot of value if you kind of plumb the depths of what they're capable of. Um, like uh, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up again, the deck that I'm playing in Kagi right now, like has a lot of self purging tools, right? Uh, it's got buzzle. It's got, it's got a lot of archiving that you can, and you can just kind of stash things away to, to craft your deck. And it's like, well, like how does my deck operate when I've carved it, carved it down to like this 20 card configuration or like this 18 card configuration. Um, all of a sudden I'm playing with, I'm playing with a deck that, feels more like a much higher rated deck because i'm i'm pound for pound with what remains just much better and uh and those sorts of decks are very interesting shock is the perfect example right because you're you're essentially crafting the deck that you want for each particular matchup but uh it doesn't take much to to turn that on you know maybe a, a buzzle in some archiving um and you can really really do a lot with those sorts of decks um I will say, too, that uh, Fudgenator just brought up a really good point in the chat. Um, he said, so, seeing someone else play your deck is a great way to learn new things about your deck. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important um, thing to do is to either play adaptive or some other um, exchange type of uh, format or just, you know, play with teammates and have them run your deck and let's and see what they decide to do with it and they may play lines that you never saw in it yeah i love that as well i think it's fantastic and um i i want to do that more you know like I, I totally agree with that point it's a great way to learn a deck is to watch someone else play with it mm -hmm. yeah not not tonight and i do hand and brain a decent amount as well when we're, when we're learning decks and it's you'd you'd think you'd think that two people who play a lot uh, you know what I, I pretend to be decent sometimes. I, I don't know if I've convinced some people or not, probably not, but there's 
it's like we would have chosen different houses or played a turn completely differently uh and and exploring those uh, like talking through those decisions with with your teammates is like invaluable invaluable and a great way to hone in on you know where you can eke extra value out of out of the decks that are your archon contenders yeah so another thing i wanted to kind of talk about is the idea of consistency in a deck there's certainly decks that you're going to find that are high roll decks and you know, maybe one out of every three games, they will just go off. And when they do, it's basically impossible to stop it. And it's probably an auto win at that point. A lot of Jenka decks are like that, right? Uh, and there's a lot of other combo decks that work that same way. But I think that you need to have a certain degree of consistency and repeatability to the deck. Whatever its its key thing is, it needs to be able to consistently do it game after game, or at least in the vast majority of games in order to make sure that you are going to get to a vault tour and you are going to be reasonably confident that your deck is going to do what it needs to do. Because if you want to get to you know, a top eight at a vault tour, you're going to have to probably win, depending upon the size of the vault tour, you're probably going to have to win half a dozen games to get there or pretty close to it. And so in order to win that many games, you're going to need to have your deck consistently performing. And the fact that your deck can explode and, you know, beat a really good deck like Pink Fraud or whatever doesn't necessarily mean that it's good enough to be consistent and beat everything it needs to beat along the way to get there. So I think that that consistency piece is another thing you're looking for when you're testing a deck. Yeah, I I can totally relate to this one too. Um, in fact, the first thing that I thought of when you mentioned this was uh, the deck I played in the Philadelphia Voltor VCK. And uh, if you want to pull that one up, it's got a lot of duplicates. And so when I think of consistency, one of the things that I look for is redundancy in the cards. So it has two mm-hmm. red alerts, two unnatural selection, two nature's call, two chain gang, two subtle chain. Like everything is kind of, it's consistent in what it's doing. And that allows it to be pretty consistent for me, like game after game. It has a few situations where it can have bad draws, but the bad draws are pretty rare with this one because there's so many duplicates um, to lay of the land as well, to encounter suit. It's got so many doubles um, that it just really enables you to have that consistent game plan that you're pretty confident that you can execute. So um, this is the one that I would probably be bringing and, uh, I, I did pretty well with it in Philadelphia. It wasn't quite good enough. Um, but, you know, I, I still like, I still second guess, you know, like, is this good enough to keep up with a lot of the other stuff we've talked about tonight? Mm. Quick draw, you, you just discard all your cards every turn. I mean, doesn't get more consistent than that. <laughs> uh, we, we love discarding cards. I mean, it's, it's what the, the, the team was named after discarding cards. I mean. Yeah. And I mean, I, I joke, but uh, I was standing behind you for a number of games, uh, especially in the latter rounds, um, as you were as you were playing and, and the matches were dwindling down, and just just very impressed with some of the decision making and how you were able to kind of make your I don't know make your own consistency, if you will, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I discarded some cards that I think people wouldn't think to discard, um, and it's just that's like you mentioned earlier, John. Like the reps, you get the reps, and you understand what your deck's trying to do. You understand when your deck gets in the way of itself, and one of the cards that gets in the way of itself in here is the Explorer Over. I, I've lost some games because I played Explorer Over either as a creature or as an upgrade, because sometimes I want to kill my own creatures. You know, I want to have an empty board for the trust no ones, which there's also two of those, the duplicates. Um, you want to have fewer creatures for red alert. Um, so discarding things like that um, and just trying to keep your board empty can really make a big difference. And so I, I think it's often creatures that I'm discarding in this deck that people will be like, you know, why wouldn't you just play the spears? You know, like, it, what, what could it hurt, right? And then you set up like a bigger trust no one the next turn after that. So like, that is more aligned with like the reps and understanding your decks matchups and, and what your goals are. Mm. Not to mention with the Explo Rover, <laughs> um, I'd be terrified of Mark of Dis too. Also, yeah. yeah. Mark of yeah. Dis is a card that I learned to play around with this deck pretty quickly. Um, any three power creature uh, in Untamed is an automatic discard if I'm playing against Mark of Dis because Mark of Dis will, could end some games against you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I... A, an interesting interesting prompt from from the chat you know from clog and how how do these kind of skills map to other things 
I mean, without going too far afield, this, this reminds me a lot of studying, say studying openings in, in chess, right? It's very easy to memorize some moves, but unless you're understanding the ideas behind the moves, uh, it's very easy to, to either get yourself, get yourself trapped or backed into a corner or go down a path subsequently, or even get to a point where you're like, now what? Um, and understanding like, like when I'm sitting behind you quick draw and you discard spears, it's, and I'm just like, why the heck would you discard spears? It's like <laughs> such a valuable, it's like such a good card. And then two turns later, three turns later, it's like double trust. No one like, all right, this man, this man knows what's, what's going on. I mean, played a few those games. Rep, played a few games, but you've also built up the intuition and you understand, you have, you understand the principles, uh, behind the earlier decision-making. Spears is funny in here because everyone thinks Spears is a great card. I almost never get any value out of Spears. And it's for two reasons. One is she's a witch and they always want to kill her. Second is there's not a ton of cards I want to discard. There might be a few Star Alliance cards that I could discard, but if I'm doing that, that means I'm most likely doing it in-house, which is kind of, yeah, not much value in there. You could discard stuff with Ghost Hawk, but like most of the uh, Untamed stuff has pips. So like I'm not excited to discard those. Um, the Shadows has a couple cards that I wouldn't mind discarding, but like yeah, for the most part, the Spears doesn't, you know, it's not like the kind of card that people like fear normally in, in this deck as it is in other decks. Um, and countersuit's another thing. Like I, sometimes I put countersuit on Spears just to make them fight twice because I, I don't even care if it dies. I just like want to take them out, you know, like make them do something a little bit different to go out of their way, even though I like I don't want it to survive. I don't care, you know. Um, so there's kind of interesting things like, you know, playing into your opponent maybe a little bit you get further and further into day one or if you are lucky enough to make it to day two those kind of tricks aren't always going to work once you get to that point where you were talking about earlier that skill matters less because everyone's going to make the right calls or is less of a less of a differentiator let's say let's yeah. not say matters less i don't know gives me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> that's it's interesting the encounter suits are ones that i see you discard and rightly so uh, after having seen you play this deck, uh, just kind of knowing the value of a, of a leaner board. I mean, of course, if they've got a, a brand on the other side of the table, that brand loves wearing an encounter suit. <laughs> I have played encounter suits on opponents' creatures a few times. Totally, totally. Get it? I yeah. get a chuckle usually when I do that. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's a fun one, and you know, not something that folks will will think to do very often. And it's got hard R, so. And it's got hard R. Yeah. And I mean, you might have enough C for all the tokens running around quick draw. I'm not sure if, uh, that was the reason I, I purchased this deck was winds of exchange. It was like a direct, it was probably in January. I think it was of this year. And I was like, I don't want to deal with these tokens. Let's find a, a deck that has a ton of C in multiple houses. And, um, it's, it's pretty good. I think it's worked out as I hoped it would. Yeah. It looks like a very much a well killer deck. That was the plan, yeah. But still, like, I still don't, I don't know, like, uh, I think you're helping me kind of, like, see the light a little bit more and stick with this, even though I I was 5-2 and two, um, in Philly with it. I've really struggled with it in NKFL lately. And that's kind of, like, another reason where I'm kind of like, ugh, do I really want to, like, play this again at a vault after having kind of a bad spell? But, you know, it's small sample size, right? Like, I, I shouldn't let... You know, a small league like NKFL, where I, you only play like six games with it, decide whether or not you're going to play that at a Voltor. That's just too small of a sample size. I was going to say, that's something I think is another important point, is not overreacting. Uh, I've definitely been known to overreact to, oh no, I lost three out of four with this deck on TCO. I better start looking for another deck at this point. You really want to make sure that, you know, you're not overreacting to what could just be bad luck or what could just be a string of bad matchups or who knows what happened. But if your deck is generally consistently performing and then you hit a bad stretch, that doesn't mean that the deck's not good. That just means that you hit a bad stretch for whatever reason. Yeah. I had a friend who was preparing for a vault tour earlier this year and he was testing some stuff out and he was pretty decided on his deck. And the night before, he was just like, man, I've just like, I've lost a ton of games to this today. And I was like, don't let that affect you. It's a great deck. You know it really well. You should stick with it. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Like, don't overreact to something, especially like in the days right before an event. It's it's good to mm -hmm. pick a deck early, get the reps that we talked about, stick with it. And, uh, you know, you'll know you make the right choice, you know, 
when you make it and just i would just say stick with it and keep getting the practice in and don't be discouraged by some bad luck totally and to 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 vc do you say vc che or vc she uh it's a hard it's a hard k sound so it's vck man you've been flip-flopping on this deck i i, I, just, I... never flip-flopped on that that is italian pronunciation <laughs> i would not mess that one up i'm also pretty sure you said pompitis at some point which is which is hilarious that's, that's english <laughs> i can mess up english all i want <laughs> fair enough but uh what was i going to say um i don't think nkfl should be weighing too I, you need to take nkfl with a grain of salt for archon deck selection and the reason being like you're playing vc like if i'm letting you play vc it's probably because i have some counters for it hmm. and what's more you are probably putting vc in a position where it needs to do a lot of work for the lineup yeah you know what i mean that's totally true I, yeah I, I used it as like my deck that i was like i i can rely on this and i should just play it regardless of matchup and i think that kind of got me in trouble a few times yeah i mean i looked at uh, i don't think i would bring it anymore but uh uh had a deck uh that i was playing an awful lot at one point aslan that is just a monster double brig deck right and if i ended up being able to play it, it's because my opponent didn't care about Brig and it was probably bad. <laughs> and it was probably bad. But uh, so so it was either getting banned or it was just facing with terrible matchups, you know? Um, and so it's it's kind of ban rate was decent, but win rate was not great. Um, yeah. And I think you have to be kind of wary of some of those things when you're when you're kind of be wary of conflating NKFL performance with, you know, pure Archon performance, if you will. Yeah. I think there's something else going on there too, which is the fact that NKFL is a heavily European league. And oftentimes the European selection of decks is different from the selection of decks that you're going to see um, at a US event. So the types of decks that you're that you should be prepared to face are different types of decks. Mm, that's interesting too. Interesting too. Yeah, it'd be it'd be curious to get some some kind of regional meta breakdowns. Um I hadn't really thought about it a whole a whole lot. But that would be that would be kind of fun to fun to dig into. I think the biggest I think the biggest takeaway that I'd want people to have from this entire discussion is the idea that when you have a new set come out, that new set is going to completely shake up the meta, assuming that it's a strong set, um, like Winds of Exchange certainly is. That shaking up of the meta gives the opportunity for all sorts of things to sneak in there that might not necessarily have been competitive before. Um, I think it's telling that for as amazing a deck as Pink Jacket is, you don't see Z playing it these days because of the fact that Winds of Exchange kind of knocked it out of the meta. So mm. we had this really established meta for several years because of the hiatus and because of the fact that we hadn't received a new set and we had played all these online events and everyone knew what the strong decks that were out there were. And then we had a small shakeup based upon the fire sale. But for the most part, it was the same meadow with the same sets on the same decks. And now suddenly we're seeing that meta completely shaken up. This is the time when you can go in there with a deck that maybe wouldn't have been competitive before. And it might be competitive for two reasons. Number one, because of the fact that it's a Winds of Exchange deck and uh, Winds of Exchange decks just do crazy things that uh, we haven't necessarily seen before. Or number two, because it's the type of deck that counters Winds of Exchange well. And Winds of Exchange is a huge part of the meta at this point. So sometimes you can sneak in there with an anti-meta deck um, that happens to play very well into Winds of Exchange. Sounds mm -hmm. like you're making a nice endorsement for Trooper. <laughs> I was just thinking. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Uh, Quick drop. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even. I'm not even kidding. Like probably my two best WoW decks that I have are both Trooper decks. Your your best WoW deck might not only be a Trooper deck, but is also sub seventy SAS, or at least was when we were when we were playing it a lot. I don't remember. Yeah, uh, it was sub. It it's in in current SAS. It's sub seventy, and I think. Future says, I think it's 80. Future so, says eight, sub 70 to I 80. Mean, wow. SAS is catching up to Trooper. It's happening. We just need to accept <laughs> this new reality. Like, listeners, Quick Draw is not joking. <laughs> He's not joking. I'm not. I'm not. It's, it's, uh, maybe I'll play it after this in, against your your beloved scholar. Um, but I'm, I'm not joking. Like, Trooper with the right synergy is highly underrated. And I'm, I would strongly consider a Trooper deck for the next 
major Archon tournament I go to because of Trooper. It's actually funny. Like, I don't think this is very off topic. I, I opened this deck at a local probably two months ago, and I looked at the card list, and uh, all the cards in, in the deck were like amazing. I was like, damn, this looks like a, a great deck. And then I saw it was a Trooper. And my first reaction was like, well, this deck would be great if it weren't Trooper. And then thankfully, I played it a few times, and I'm like, holy crap, this deck would suck if it didn't have a Trooper. And I'm not kidding. There's there's so much synergy with it. It is a big body that I think is just very underrated with the tokens. Um, and it has so much creature control like with the trooper itself, but creature control that does not hit the trooper. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be better with a Bellator and Warrior though. Um no, it would not be. I'm not kidding. I love Bellator and Warrior. Um Not Tonight has a great Bellator and Warrior deck. Um but no, it's the synergy with Exalting. It has two epic poems in it, which really like makes the deck go it's like the consistency that you talked about having a couple of them so that if one's tokenized you can still have the other one um i don't think it has any sand hoppers or anything like that but um my second trooper deck that is also very good um has two sand hoppers and so two sand hoppers two epic poems like you're gonna find that and that kind of combo can really rush and i think that that's obviously what makes the deck great is that it can win games and seven turns with a ton of creature control, ton of amber generation, and not a ton of pips for an Infernus to eat into. That is one thing that has been very refreshing to me since Winds of Exchange hit the meta, is that Jock aside and its Infernuses, we're really seeing very few Infernuses at Voltors anymore, Yeah, uh, at, which I think is just fantastic because I was over that card several years ago and it had been dominating the meta until winds of exchange finally hit. Yeah, I, I agree. And in fact, I almost played a dark tidings deck in Philadelphia for Archon, but I was afraid of Infernus. Turns out I like, I don't think I saw a single Infernus outside of JT's deck. Um, Eaton's jar also hurts it. And I didn't see an Eaton's jar outside of JT's deck. I mean, there were a few of them out there. I think one made the top eight, but you know, I was so afraid of these specific cards that influenced my, my decision to play a deck or not play a deck in Archon. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of regret that. I kind of wish I had played it now. And I think my chance is gone because I think it is a little bit weaker against tokens now. Um, but at the time it was, uh, for various, well, I don't want to get into it too much, but there were some rule changes that happened that, that kind of hurt it. But at Philadelphia, I think the important thing is that you guys remember there was not a ton of woe being played there. It was still like players adjusting to what mm -hmm. they wanted to trust and, and believe in with like Worlds Collide and Mass Mutation. So the woe count was a lot lower in that first Vault Tour than it was in the more recent ones. And so now you have to assume you're going to face a ton of woe. But back then it was a little bit different. Well, to sort of wrap wrap things up, I have one, one last kind of question. And it's probably not going to be one we have a, we have a hard answer for um but general thoughts in closing um for a lot of collections too i think there's a there's a breaking point between uh or a trade-off between a deck ceiling and a deck's consistency i don't know do you have any thoughts on kind of how strong you want your consistent deck to be before before the the, the temptress of a you know very high ceiling pulls you pulls you in a different direction like uh let's take the the jenka deck without uh without any archiving as an example right this is a deck with a very high ceiling but maybe it doesn't have much much going for it unless that combo lines up versus your uh just for generalizations like your your mid mid to low 70s uh mass mutation deck that's just kind of good stuff um moderate moderate good stuff but doesn't really have any spikes in its in its game plan I mean, is there is there kind of a is there kind of a, a tipping point in your mind where you're you're like I don't know if the consistent thing is really going to cut it. Yeah, I guess that um, for me, I'd like to see, I mean, obviously what you ideally want to see is both, right? You want to see some amount of consistency towards whatever your high roll is going to be. Um, so just to kind of give an example of that with Helium, the deck that obviously we kind of started this discussion with, um, Helium obviously looks to high roll off of the trainer scholars, but it does that relatively consistently. And if it couldn't do that relatively consistently, um, I don't think that I would be able to play the deck at a um, high level. It's one of the things that I've said, because people have brought me decks before and they said, hey, look at this deck. It has a legionary scholar in it. And it's got these other really good cards. 
And when I look at the deck, I see there's only one legionary trainer in there. And I was like, I just don't think that's going to be consistent enough. I think that mm-hmm. you have to have at least two legionary trainers in order to really make a legionary scholar deck work. So I think that you have to have a deck that can push aggressively, that can do something that's really good, but it's got to be able to do it at least semi-consistently. Um, so I know it's kind of a cop-out answer because you were looking for one or the other, but I really think you do have to have a balance of the two of them. I think just having one or the other is not going to be good enough on its own. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it so hard to trust the deck. You know, like I I might have decks that are consistent, but they, they don't spike hard enough. And that's how I feel a lot of my decks are. Um, and so that's why I, I kind of struggle to like trust and have faith in something um, to play an Archon. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. Um, I think I'd probably personally lean towards the ceiling for myself. And I'd, I'd like to try to get, you know, like in-game decisions to allow me to get there more regularly. Maybe that's holding the right card in the right matchup. Um, even if you don't have archiving for your Jenka, something like that. I, I think personally, I, I would lean closer to ceiling is my answer. Interesting. I think there's a, I don't know, a universal imposter syndrome around deck viability, unless you've already won a couple of vault tours. Yep. Uh, so, yep. you know, it doesn't go away no matter how many decks you've got. <laughs> I, I feel that. I don't know, John, if you don't want to say how many decks you have, that's fine. But I'm, I'm wondering in your collection, how many or what percentage of decks do you think you could be like, yeah, I could bring that to play Archon and Voltor? Maybe half a dozen. Okay. Is that talking like less than 1%? Uh, well, that depends on how you define my particular collection. Because as I think I said in one of the previous times I was on here, I thinned my collection pretty hard. Mm-hmm. So I've opened over 3,000 decks, but I only keep a little over 200 in my collection. Okay. So, so I guess it's about 3% of my collection, but... <laughs> less than one percent of what i've opened so did you of those you know what 2800 that you've gotten rid of any any vault tour candidates in there no um if i'm getting rid of a deck then i feel then it's has shown me that it's not quite um, at the level that i want it to be at um for high level competitive play if i think it has a shot at high level competitive play i'm not getting rid of it so what you're actually saying then is um, 0.2% of decks you think are Archon tier. Well, and it's it's an interesting question too, right? Because let's talk about for a moment um, the deck I mentioned from my first Voltor experience, Duke H. Gaunt Vision. And that deck was a deck that at the time I considered to be Archon competitive. Obviously it was Archon competitive. It came in second in a vault tour, but um, these days I would never try and play that deck. Um, I know that the meta has passed it by and it doesn't really win anymore. So certain decks may have been competitive at one point, but they're not competitive anymore. Um, I have one deck that uh, won the, NKFL Coda Archon Championship. It's a very good deck, but it wouldn't be able to compete in the um, current meta. Mm-hmm. So, so you're just putting more value on like evaluating the meta and kind of attacking from different angles. Oh, uh, and you know, so, and decks age out of the meta. You know, mm-hmm. decks that were competitive sometimes aren't as competitive anymore. You know, I mentioned um, how I mentioned earlier how you don't really see Z playing Pink Jacket anymore, and that's a fantastic deck. Uh, we haven't really seen Galaxy show up at Vault Tours uh, recently, and that's an amazing deck. So, you know, there are these very strong decks out there that um, were competitive at one point, and maybe they still are, who knows, but um, that are not getting played anymore because people have decided that they're not competitive. And mm-hmm. I, um, I mean, to be fair, too, I think you uh, don't want to don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like you personally are also at a point where you've seen a lot of decks, you maybe have a, a taste for decks that you like, and you probably don't need the 201st competitive candidate <laughs> necessarily. And so that may that may weigh into your decision to let things go. And I may look at that deck 201 and be like, this is my jam. Like, like I can ride this to victory sort of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, did, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there because we've been talking about how more decks are Archon competitive 
than we think. And then, you know, you have a very, I think, selective taste of what you would want to play. And so I think affinity comes into play here as well. Like you may only have six that you'd like to bring, but someone else may have, they might be able to look at a lot of your other decks and say like, yeah, I would, I would totally bring that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'll give you a good example of that. Um, at the last vault tour, um, one of my decks that had been just sitting in my collection, um, but I hadn't been playing, um, I sold it to one of my teammates and she played it at the vault tour. She really liked it. I, I never liked the deck, never enjoyed it. Um, and she really liked it. And she ended up getting matched up against Drazkor, who was on ooze and she beat him with that deck. And it's something that I probably wouldn't have been able to do with that deck, but it really fit the style that she wanted to play. And it did not fit the style that I wanted to play. So yeah, absolutely. The whole affinity thing comes into it. Yeah. You look at Rector like that, probably would have been in a bulk bulk pile for a lot of people <laughs> you know a lot of a lot of big sellers would probably have let that go without without one play you know maybe one play but you know uh, a lot of folks would look at a 70 low 70 sas aoa and just be like okay like moving on to the next lottery ticket um mm-hmm. uh so i don't know there's their gems they're gems in there for sure definitely. and uh mm-hmm. and the reps are definitely rewarded as as in that case absolutely well all right, folks, uh, I can already feel myself uh, uh, hating the editing later because we're going long. So <laughs> yeah, because of my Internet connections tonight. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty stable or at least uh, at least you've gone in and out in ways that haven't been uh, too too noticeable. So it works. <laughs> uh, any any closing thoughts before uh, before we hear from our sponsor? Yeah, not for me. Just thank thanks to John. Yeah. I guess my closing thought would would be just, you know, give give Archon a chance. Don't just determine that you can't play it and there's no way you can be competitive. Actually take that chance and you may find that you have a lot of fun with it and that uh, you may have things that you think that are more competitive than you think they are. Right on, right on. Well, folks, uh, season two has a very special sponsor for this one. Actually, this is one sponsored by by uh, by me, by JT Russell. I have a spinoff business where I'm doing um, pun books from the Crucible. Uh, so pick up your copy of Knox uh, Knox Jokes over at Amazon. Uh, just search for Knox Knox over on Amazon. You'll find it there, uh, and you'll be ready for the next time you head down to your local uh, local event to uh, regale. Your, your friends and locals with uh, excellent puns so check it out check it out uh yeah proceeds go to supporting this very show right on so <laughs> uh yeah okay that one was kind of weak guys i apologize but you know <laughs> <laughs> in my uh, opinion i had some affinity for that one i think that was an archon caliber advertisement right there oh okay, okay. <laughs> fix it in post Fix it in post. We'll waste not the opportunity. Uh, folks, I want to let you all know that we record episodes of Bottom of the Beaker right here at twitch.tv slash sloppy lab work uh, every Tuesday night at 9.30 Eastern. Uh, you can find recordings of our past shows over at youtube.com. Search for at sloppy lab work over there. And for the very best content, 34, no, no, 57 times distilled and scraped from the bottom beaker. Search for that very phrase in your podcatcher of choice. And we'll be there ready to test some of your Archon candidates with you. Thanks so much to Second Act, aka John from Weekend Key Warriors, for uh, joining us for this very special second episode of season two, the 222. Thank you, John. Thank you guys for having me. Always a pleasure. And uh, quick draw, any word for the folks getting off of the final audio stop? Thanks to everyone tuning in live tonight and everyone out there listening. Stay sloppy.